Welcome to the Wrigley's Education Team podcast with Tim Wrigley and Chris Billington. We're both partners in the education team working closely with all types of schools and academies. In this episode, we're looking at an overview of the academy conversion process, the timetable and the key legal documents. Okay, Chris, can you start off by just telling me um, roughly how long the conversion process is likely to take? Uh, Well, the DfE guidance suggests that conversion uh, will take approximately three months. Um, But generally that is the period that runs from the Academy order when uh, the conversion really starts to accelerate. And there's a formal timetable that uh, uh, DfE provide. The information is on their website about how that how that, how that three months is broken down with the key documents. Uh, but academy conversion really does start uh, sometime before the academy order. Uh, logically, uh, for there to be an academy order, there has to be an academy application. Um, but there's a significant amount of work that schools can uh, and indeed really should be doing even before it makes its application for uh, an academy order. I see. So what should uh, schools be doing in in that period in the lead-up to the application then? Uh, The key element is really about the consultation. Um, Schools very much are aware and concentrate on consultation once the Academy Order has been issued and have moved away from the early consultation that uh, they, they used to undertake. But it's important that uh, the Academy application itself isn't a surprise to key stakeholders. Here we're talking uh, very obviously about um, parents, staff, uh, pupils, obviously, um, but also in terms of a discussion with the local authority. Um, one of the key factors in the conversion timetable is the capacity of the local authority to deal with the conversion work from their side. Uh, Very often that deals with land issues. Uh, Land can be complicated. And uh, the more that the school has discussion with the council before uh, they go into um, uh, the academy application, uh, the greater understanding they will have of some of the key issues, whether it's um, a defect in the title, whether it's a problem with the boundaries, whether it's Uh, the simple fact of uh, putting some formalities around uh, shared use agreements where um, there are other organisations on site with the school. Um, Also in the early stages, uh, schools should be looking at the due diligence. Now that's more important for multi-academy trusts where schools that perhaps are unknown to them will convert and join them. But again, a lot of this work can be done in the early stages. A lot of the potential issues can be identified and uh, steps taken to uh, work around those issues so that they don't actually impact on the three-month timeline once the Academy Order was given. I see. Um, I'm going to ask you a little bit more about due diligence in a moment, but before we move on from the consultation requirements, can I just check, is there any formal requirement to consult with, with other schools in the area? Uh, again, yes. Uh, the, the consultation obligation is stakeholders, and that's anyone who can be impacted by the decision of the school to go to academy status. Uh, naturally, uh, many schools will have an ongoing dialogue with their local schools, um, but it's key, for example, when a secondary school is proposing to convert, that it's 
discussing that with its primary feeders uh, so that any concerns over potential admission arrangements can be resolved. Uh, and again, when uh, secondary schools are, are seeking to convert, how that might impact on um, sixth form colleges and other uh, secondary providers in the area. I see. So am I right in thinking that um, there isn't a, a one-size-fits-all template solution to uh, stakeholder consultation? It's just what's necessary in the particular circumstances of the particular school? Absolutely. Uh, schools will know who their key partners are in their local community and uh, you know, they shouldn't hide uh, an academy conversion plan uh, from from those uh, stakeholders, from those partners. Uh, absolutely. Okay, thanks for clarifying that. So um, you started talking about due diligence. Um, what is due diligence uh, and what does it mean in the context of an academy conversion? Uh, um, the term due diligence uh, can be used quite a lot, usually by, by the lawyers. Um, it really is just a process by which the school um, learns as much as it can about uh, issues that will affect its conversion. Um, there's some key um, pieces of information that the school have to gather and they'll give to their lawyers as part of the process of completing the conversion documents. Um, there's due diligence around land. I've already touched on uh, the issue there that schools need, they should already know, but they need to understand anything that affects the school site because it could delay and in some cases it could prevent uh, conversion. Uh, they'll need to understand all the contracts that they hold, uh, any supply contracts, utility, um, water, alarms, uh, anything whereby somebody supplies services or goods into the school because uh, those contracts have to be transferred across to the Academy Trust once it's in place. Uh, also, the schools will need to look at uh, what assets they have. Um, again, those assets have to cross over and part of the documentation of the conversion uh, is the commercial transfer agreement which lists assets and contracts which are agreed by uh, the council or if the school has a foundation by its foundation. Um, but due diligence does that a little bit more. It's not just about the conversion itself, it's, it's looking to the future. Uh, many schools are concerned about what their mission, vision, values will be uh, and the due diligence gives them an opportunity just to explore those. So insofar as they feel that they need to capture it in some way, they have that opportunity as part of the conversion process. The more work they do before the uh, application for the Academy Order, the easier uh, the conversion process can be made because there's quite a lot of balls to juggle in that period. And also looking to the future, um, governance is very important. Uh, gaining um, in significance in terms of uh, the attention given to it by the EFA and uh, in due course by, by Ofsted. And again, as part of the conversion process, the school will need to have given quite considerable thought to what its governance arrangements will be. Uh, that is more important in a multi-academy trust setting uh, than necessarily a standalone where things tend not to change too much uh, post-conversion. Okay, that's really helpful. And um, as I see it, then there's sort of two sides to the due diligence process. First of all, there's the school uh, making sure that it understands all the arrangements that are in place and having that documentation ready to give to the academy trust, assuming that's going to be a separate entity, um, so that they can look at what they're going to be taking on. And similarly, from the school's perspective, they're going to look at the academy trust to work out how they're going to sit 
within the multi-academy multi trust arrangement. Absolutely. Uh, again, um, particularly in multi-academy trust situations, you have got two parties. Each have to be satisfied that the conversion as part of that multi-academy trust is going to work for everybody. They need to make those uh, inquiries, they need to ask those questions. Yeah, absolutely. I assume it's a little bit different for, for sponsored academies and, and that process is really dealt with as part of the RSC's brokering decision making uh, before it, that sponsored academy order is made. In, indeed. Um, in those situations, sponsored schools sometimes just don't have a choice as to who their uh, partner will be. But again, the multi-academy trust will want to know what it's taking on, uh, what it has to uh, do to support a school that is in in measures or experiencing other weaknesses. Yes, I see. Okay, um, so we've done some due diligence. Um, do we need to go through all of the due diligence? Uh, is that when we're ready to make our application? No, um, it's important to recognise that the due diligence is necessary, um, but it doesn't have to be completed. You don't have to have all your ducks in order before you make your application. Uh, once you've started your due diligence, um, it may take some time. Others, it will be a relatively quick and easy affair. But it's starting that process early that's important, not necessarily completing it. Uh, you will have to complete all of those inquiries and you will have to have provided all the information necessary to complete the legal documents before you convert. But certainly uh, you can make your application uh, whilst consultation and due diligence are underway. Okay, great. Um, can a school get any help with, with the due diligence process then? Uh, yes, it can. Uh, and it obviously will seek help as part of the conversion process. Um, there are a number of uh, professionals out there that uh, will line up uh, to give support to schools going through the conversion process. Um, first and foremost, as always, are the lawyers. Um, schools are required at present uh, by DfE to appoint uh, lawyers uh, and their role does tend to focus on land issues sometimes they can be quite complex uh, they do have other roles uh, in terms of the other conversion documents and they will uh, certainly uh, the, the good ones uh, they will support the school through the conversion process and and make sure the school knows what it needs to do um, Schools uh, can also get support and uh, should be talking to accountants early on in the process. Uh, there can be some quite significant changes that need to be made, particularly to uh, financial and reporting software that the school has, just to make its life easier uh, once it converts. Um, schools need to recognise that once they have converted to academy status, they become part of a company, part of a charity, and they are of course academies. and. There are financial reporting obligations that attach to each of those and they need to ensure that their professionals are familiar with that uh, so that they can give support. Uh, in addition, alongside uh, the professional teams as part of the conversion process, there are a number of project managers who will offer their support to schools. Um, from my perspective, uh, schools do need to be careful about uh, using project managers, yes they'll bring additional capacity uh, and add to the, the team uh, within the school that is managing the conversion process, 
Um, but it's important that the school understands what that conversion process means for the school, and they don't just leave it to a project manager who, who won't necessarily be there once the conversion is completed. Um, the school does need to think about investing in its business team. Um, there's a lot of work in the conversion process, so support is needed, but post-conversion the business team need to understand all of the documents that have been uh, entered into and uh, how to satisfy uh, their ongoing academy obligations, particularly under the Academy's Financial Handbook. I see, that's really helpful. Um, we haven't touched really on the staff transfer um, and, and I'm aware that part of the process will be a Tupi transfer of the staff and um, is there a due diligence process in relation to, to staff transferring? Uh, yes indeed, they are one of those stakeholders uh, but it's also important to bear in mind that there are separate rules that apply specifically to staff in a conversion uh, and that's the transfer of undertaking regulations uh, known as TUPI. Uh, staff terms and conditions will transfer across to the academy at the point of which uh, the school converts to academy status and within that process there is an information and consultation uh, aspect uh, particularly where schools uh, may be considering uh, some changes to staffing uh, which are arising because of the conversion. Now, they need to separate out changes that might be taking place on a, on a normal basis. So, for example, uh, examining um, uh, the, the, the annual curriculum changes or simple annual budgeting pressures. Um, those are in the ordinary course uh, and not specific to the transfer. But it's important that schools take advice on uh, what their obligations are under 2P. Uh, in large part, that will be provided by the school's current HR advisors, uh, often uh, the local authority team. And obviously, with uh, more and more schools having converted to academy status, the local authority teams are pretty much on the ball in terms of the 2P process that needs to be applied. Um, but again, if they discuss that with their lawyers as part of the conversion process, uh, they'll get the uh, support and assistance uh, that they need to ensure uh, that they comply with their requirements. Right, I see. Um, do lots of schools make changes to staff terms and conditions then, or restructure when they go through academy conversion? It's, it is very rare. Uh, normally, uh, a school that is converting, uh, particularly a school that's converting of its own initiative, uh, there won't be any changes, there's no intention to make any changes. It's one of the areas that uh, trade unions have highlighted as an area of concern uh, that once schools have gone to academy status, the various protections that exist for staff terms and conditions will be eroded, uh, but there's no evidence that that is, is happening. Okay, great. That's uh, some comfort for, for school staff and teachers uh, there then. Okay, so um, can you tell me a bit more about the key conversion documents then? Um, can we start with the application? What actually happens? Well, the application is straightforward in that uh, there's a form available on the uh, DfE Academy website. Uh, the school will download it and uh, confirm some basic details about the school and their plans for the Academy. For example, uh, they will start to provide uh, some detail around who will be the uh, first members and directors of the Academy Trust. 
Um, it's uh, not normal for the lawyers to get involved in that stage, but again, uh, the lawyers will support the school through the conversion process and uh, will uh, hopefully already have had uh, some detailed discussions with the school about its governance plans uh, and that can help fill that form in. Once it's completed, it's sent off to um, the DfE, it goes before the Regional Schools Commissioners uh, Head Teachers Board and it will take anywhere normally between six and eight weeks for the approval process to complete. Uh, obviously some schools can be fast-tracked through that process um, and those schools that are, are not having the option but are um, being sponsored uh, will be uh, fast-tracked and uh, the, the relevant application effectively done on, on their behalf. Okay, I see. Um, so right, assuming we've got our academy order now, presumably the first thing we need is, is an academy trust. Um, obviously there are lots of existing multi-academy trusts and, and quite a few of those are growing. But if we wanted to establish our own new academy trust, um, how do we go about doing that? Um, well, as I've mentioned, the conversion process involves a number of uh, key documents. Um, part of that is the uh, establishment of the Academy Trust. It's a company limited by a guarantee. Um, I'm looking here at uh, the conversion process rather than some of the detail in the documents, which we'll, we'll cover in some other um, podcasts. Uh, but in discussion with the lawyers, uh, you, uh, the school will... Um, complete the DfE template, Memorandum and Articles of Association. There are a couple of different versions available, so uh, church schools have a particular model. There is also a model for uh, cooperative schools. Uh, but by and large, there is a simple, uh, straightforward template uh, for the Memorandum and Articles of Association that forms the constitution uh, for the Academy Trust, and that is the, the legal entity that uh, the schools convert and become part of. Um, the Memorandum and Articles will set out some basic provisions in terms of uh, the appointment, removal and decision-making process for members and directors. But it is very much a, a framework document and there's a huge amount of flexibility in terms of the way in which an Academy Trust will operate, even when it's using the DfE template documents. Okay, great. Um, so you said there's a few different legal documents. Can you tell me a little bit more about the other documents that we're likely to come across? Um, I've touched on one of the key elements in the conversion process, which is around land. Uh, most academies, when they convert, should expect that they'll receive from the council a 125-year lease of the school site. Uh, the lease is at a peppercorn, which is just a legal term to effectively mean that there's no rent payable. Uh, that doesn't mean to say that that applies in all cases. Uh, for example, uh, church and foundation schools will have a slightly different process. Church schools don't normally expect to receive a, a lease of their main school site, which is usually held on their behalf by the diocese or uh, a local um, church-based trust on behalf of the school. And they'll get a license to use and to continue to use the school site. Uh, with foundation schools, uh, there may well be uh, a freehold transfer involved well, it depends on the nature of the foundation that the school has. Uh, so I say, yeah, 125-year um, lease, uh, again, a DfE template document. There are some uh, provisions within the lease that do need to be fine-tuned to the particular school, uh, but by and large, it's a, it's a 
a well-tested route. Yes, I think, as you say, the, the land issues can be one of the more complicated uh, aspects of the conversion process, and, and we'll cover that in, in another session. Um, so that's the memorandum and articles of the Academy Trust and the lease. Um, I understand that we need a funding agreement in order to have some money for the Academy. Yes, indeed. Uh, funding agreement is one of the key conversion documents, um, but uh, it doesn't really um, do much other than um, record the agreement that the Academy Trust will run an Academy and the Secretary of State will provide some funding. What funding, what levels of funding, etc., are not dealt with within the documentation. They're all subject to uh, national formula and other um, conditions that apply largely to the maintained sector uh, as well. But under the funding agreement, there are certain commitments that the Academy Trust will enter into. One of the key commitments is that the Academy Trust will comply with the Academy's financial handbook and the various financial uh, regulations that are made under the handbook. Uh, so it's a significant document, but uh, makes for poor reading. I see. Um, so presumably, uh, as you say, the funding agreement doesn't tell us how much money we're going to get. Um, presumably when we apply for our Academy order, someone will tell us that. Uh, there will be an indicative funding uh, letter issued to the uh, school to give them a, an idea of what their funding will be. Uh, the funding formula is the same, uh, so there's, there's no fundamental difference from that perspective. Uh, yes, uh, an academy may expect to receive slightly more uh, money in terms of uh, any uh, top slicing that a local authority might otherwise have done, uh, but that uh, is, is often replaced in a multi-academy trust by uh, an agreement between the academy and the academy trust that there's a certain financial contribution by, this, by the academy to the running of the academy trust that they're part of. Okay, I see. Um, so you mentioned the commercial transfer agreement earlier. What, what does that contain? Yeah, well, that's the uh, document that records the actual transfer of uh, the various contracts that the school has, the various assets that the school owns, and also records the, uh, the, the fact of the transfer of staff under uh, the 2P regulations. Um, there are certain arrangements that are agreed in terms of uh, financial measures to deal with um, who pays for what uh, in terms of uh, post-conversion or pre-conversion uh, invoices, bills, etc. that uh, that arise in the ordinary course of the, uh, the running of the school. Uh, and in some cases there are indemnities on behalf of the local authority to the Academy Trust in respect of staff matters. So if there were staff claims existing before uh, the transfer, before the conversion, uh, then the local authority uh, may well agree that it would continue to carry a financial responsibility uh, for that. Uh, not surprisingly, um, many uh, councils will uh, negotiate and remove uh, any financial obligations on its part post-conversion. Uh, their argument tends to be along the lines that uh, since the Academy now receives the funding that was otherwise for the purposes of the school, um, it's for the Academy to pay for anything that relates to the running of the school. Uh, the local authority would never have necessarily have covered the, a financial cost whilst the school was a maintained school, and it's certainly not going to do so 
uh, when the school is converted to academy status. I see. Um, in relation to that, I've heard that uh, local authorities sometimes want to keep some of the money back. Can that happen? Uh, no. Um, there is a, an accounting process that the council is required to follow, um, effectively to uh, reconcile the accounts of the school to the point of its conversion. Um, and there is a time limit, three months, in which that process is supposed to be completed. If not, then uh, the academy can uh, make a complaint to the EFA and ask for their assistance in resolving any outstanding uh, financial arrangements with the, uh, with the council relating to uh, the pre-conversion uh, period. I see. So if there is money left on that balance sheet, what happens to that? Uh, that money uh, should go across to the academy. It belongs to the school, uh, it's part of the school's assets and it will form part of the academy's assets uh, post-conversion. Okay, great. Um, so we've got an academy trust, we've got a land arrangement, we've got a funding agreement and there's been a transfer of uh, assets. Uh, is that everything then? It seems relatively straightforward. Most conversions will be uh, relatively straightforward, but uh, any conversion can have its own particular uh, circumstances that it has to deal with. I've, I've touched on that there could be shared use arrangements on site, third party access on site. A lot of these do, again, relate to uh, a particular uh, situation of the school and its site. Um, there is a need uh, to ensure that any any issues relating to the land are formalised as part of the conversion process and a school more often than not will not be allowed to convert until DfE is satisfied that some suitable arrangement has been put in place. Um, now that can take time. Um, if we start to look at PFI arrangements there's a whole separate suite of documents that exist in relation to PFI schools that need to be factored into the conversion process. I see. Well, I think we've got a good overview of the academy conversion process then. That's really helpful. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. For more information, ring Kim Wrigley on 0113-204-5743 or Chris Billington on 0113-204-5734. Alternatively, visit wrigleys.co.uk where you'll find more information and also our email addresses. Thanks again.